the Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards showcase the outstanding talent we have in the Australian complementary medicine profession. Nominations are now open for the 2018 Beamer Awards. For more information and to book your ticket to the gala dinner, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash BIMA. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today all the way from Christchurch, New Zealand is Julia Rutledge. Julia is a professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Psychology at the University of Canterbury, Christchurch in New Zealand. Originally from Toronto, Canada, she did her undergraduate training in neurobiology at McGill University in Montreal. She then completed a master's and PhD at the University of Calgary, boy you've moved around a bit, in clinical psychology, followed by a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. In 2000 she joined the Department of Psychology where she teaches child psychology in the child psychology program and introduced the topic of mental health and nutrition into the wider psychology program. Her interests in nutrition and mental illness grew out of her own research showing poor outcomes for children with significant psychiatric illness despite receiving conventional treatments for their conditions. And we'll be delving into this with Julia Rutledge today on FX Medicine. Welcome, Julia. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on your show. Now, I've got to say, you were actually a danger to me while I was driving because I could not put down your TEDx talk and I kept on having to pull over off off into side streets, hoping for a red light and everything like that. I dare say there was a time or two when I glanced down, so I apologise to any drivers around me at the time. I found it riveting. uh, well, I certainly don't recommend that you watch a video while you're driving. I've never heard this before. But um, it was glances. But anyway, maybe maybe your life is too busy that that's the only opportunity you get. I was I was in my Zen moment. But take us through your background. What sparked your interest to look at uh, sure. nutrition? Yep. Sure. Um, well, I'm a clinical psychologist, as you mentioned um, in my bio, and I, you know, I always tell everyone that I was told that nutrition was irrelevant mm. in mental illness when yeah. I went through graduate school, and that it really played a, a you know a insignificant role in the development of mental illness and in the treatment of mel- mental illness, and that only drugs or psychotherapy could treat um, the, you know these serious conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as you also said in my bio. Uh, I, I was very aware of research that was showing poor long-term outcomes for people with mental illness despite receiving the best care. And if we look at the data, um, you know, over the last decade, it's certainly true that across the board, if we know whether people are taking stimulants or whether people are taking antidepressants or they're taking antipsychotics, in the long term, we are simply not um, resolving these problems for enough people. And so I think it's really important that as scientists, we explore new avenues, no matter how controversial they might be and no matter how much they might contravene the current way of thinking. So in um, actually towards the end of, of doing my PhD at the University of Calgary, mm. my 
um, supervisor, Professor Bonnie Kaplan, was approached by some families who were treating themselves with nutrients, mm-hmm. and they were reporting getting well and staying well on these nutrients. And they had, you know, the, these members of these families had uh, bipolar disorder and um, uh, depression. Uh, some ha- even had psychosis, and yet these nutrients seemed to be helping them. And so my um, my supervisor was certainly skeptical at the time and, um, you know, at first told them to go away, take their snake oil somewhere else. But she then was convinced by some data that they shared with her and showed her, you know, people getting well. And so she decided to study the nutrients in the earlier part of the century. And so she and others actually published some very preliminary data um, in 2001, 2002, that certainly convinced me that it was worthwhile looking at it. And, you know, taking that in the context of what I've just described, that in the long term, we're not doing very well in terms of addressing mental health issues. The number of people with psychiatric illness is going up. It's not going down despite receiving the best conventional care that I, I decided to study the nutrients. And so that's what I decided to do back in well, over a decade ago, 2005, 2006. Yeah. And I haven't stopped. Okay. So uh, some of this smacks of my um, stance, I guess, when I was a registered nurse. I was totally blind, totally ignorant, totally arrogant, would not accept. You could have put any study in front of me and I wouldn't have accepted it. Yeah. I would merely would have said what I had been taught ad verbatim, Vitamins and herbs are of no use. Yeah. So how did you open up? What was it that changed your, tweaked you to think, oh, maybe? Yeah. Um, As it is for many people, it's seen a case get better. And so um, my first study, my first case study that I published was on a a young boy, a young man with OCD Mm -hmm. and so obsessive compulsive disorder. And he had actually been seeing me as a psychologist for over a year. And um, I had, you know, given him the best cognitive behavior therapy as, you know, the the best treatments that are recommended for the treatment of OCD. And he had really marginally improved over that time. Um, You know, we had a very good relationship. He didn't mind coming to see me. But if we looked at his symptoms, they had, had really only had a modest change over that period of time. And so then I was um, in the situation where I was thinking about using the nutrients. I was skeptical. I was not sure what, you know, where I was going to go with that. And we, I had some of the, I had some free nutrients that had been given to me, a trial that we'd wanted to get going was, we were struggling with it. There were some problems in getting it going and off the, the, the ground, you know, many, many reasons for that, um, that I don't need to go into, but I had these nutrients. And so I said to the family, look, I have no idea if these are going to work for you. There's a case study out there of a a boy who had OCD symptoms seemed to have helped him. I have no idea if this is going to help you, uh, but we've, you know, we've offered you the, you know, psychotherapy, the family at the time were unwilling to um, try medications. And so, Ah. I said, what do you have to lose? Yeah. And so this young man took the nutrients and they came, he came in two weeks later and he and his mother said, the OCD is gone. And you don't have that experience very often in my world, (laughs) that that kind of thing happening to you. And so I I paid attention because I'd heard about this from my supervisor. I have great respect for Bonnie Kaplan. She had told me about families getting well. 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I trusted her. It's still hard to believe even when someone tells you it. But when you see it, uh, you see someone get well with nutrients, someone who you've worked with, you know it's not a placebo effect because you've worked with them for mm, so long. Yeah. There's no way it was had anything to do with, um, I mean, it could, I suppose you could still claim it was a placebo effect, but it just was so dramatic. And we'd worked so hard to try to change this young man's OCD with really such little success that I was uh, impressed. Mm. And so we we monitored him over time. We um, After eight weeks, he was doing really well. The family decided to stop the nutrients. This OCD symptoms uh, um, returned. There's your challenge. And then, and then we put him back on them. And then he, his, the OCD symptoms got better. He went off. So we did what's called a classic ABAB design with yep. this young person and really saw that there was on-off, on-off control of the symptoms with or without the nutrients. So that was enough to get me really curious about what was going on. And then, and then you know, up until then, I was always like, vitamins and minerals? Why, you know, as you say, why would they work? That doesn't make any sense. Um, but as soon as you delve into it, you realize it, it couldn't make more sense mm. that every single um, biochemical process that happens in our bodies require cofactors. Cofactors are vitamins and minerals, and they're required for, um, for all of these chemical reactions to be occurring. For, so for us to be so arrogant, as you use that word, to suggest that it's meaningless really is uh, not doing a, dis- it's, it's really doing a disservice to, um, a, to just understanding basic physiology. Absolutely. So how, did, how then do you talk, particularly now, given your understanding of over a decade of, of use, responsible use mm-hmm. of micronutrients, macronutrients in mental health disorders. How do you talk to colleague, to colleagues who are still sceptical? Do you grab them around the throat and shake them around? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I've learned that doesn't work. Um, I've learned that when someone's mind is closed, someone's mind is closed. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like with any debate that they've, they've formed an opinion and that they, um, they, they, it's very hard to shift them from there. So I've just taken the approach of we use data. And yeah. so Fine. If you're not going to listen to our early work, our open label trials were pretty much dismissed as, um, as you know, that they were, they were, you know, the reason why we we observed people getting better on the nutrients was because, of course, was the strong placebo effect, yeah. and that that's why these patients were reporting themselves getting better. I was, I mean, again, when we did an open label trial of 14 adults with ADHD and just hearing that these patients come in and just telling me they just hadn't felt so calm or so, um, so regulated, um, you know, just didn't have the ups and downs like they used to have. They just felt really, uh, you know, just, um, they felt normal mm. is often what people will tell me. And so, um, you know, after a while, I've, you know, I've gotten used to those stories, but certainly in the early days, I was still, I mean, I was still just stunned that that just vitamins and minerals could have such a a powerful effect for some, for some people, certainly not everyone, Mm. not everyone responds, but, uh, you know, a good proportion of people do. So I just, we've just collected, we just sit here in my lab and we run clinical trials. It's not my favorite pastime to do randomized control trials in that they're challenging, they're difficult. It's hard to get people enrolled. Um, you know, it ta- they, they take a long time. They're expensive. But that's what we have to do. And because that's what people will listen to is that if you've done a properly designed 
randomized control trial, fully blinded, um, using a placebo, then it's hard at that point for people to ignore you, especially if you, as we've been able to successfully do, is to publish it in good journals. Yeah. I mean, that's been the other challenge is to actually publish this work. Uh, I was, I, you know, again, I'm just, sometimes I go into this so naively. I think, okay, we've we finished our first RCT with the adults with ADHD was our first blinded RCT. We've done a few RCTs after the earthquake, but those weren't blinded. Right. Um, but our first blinded RCT, you know, I, I, I was done exactly like a drug trial where, um, you know, the, we'd, we'd um, you know, followed the protocol of how you would have done it if you'd had a, you, know, you were using a stimulant um, instead of the nutrients. Um, and the statistician was independent of our program and, and analyzed the data independent of us and, you know, done, you know, perfectly um, in those, you know, from those perspective of how you, you run an RCT. I was surprised um, at how hard it was to publish it, and that we were our the work was getting rejected by journals without even being reviewed. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it was. So it was, it was again. It was like, but we've done. You know, I was told that your sample's too small. But you, you know, when it comes to sample size, you do a power analysis and you determine what sample you need yep. based on, um, you know, pilot data. And so we'd adequately powered it. Um, you know, they, they, I had some ridiculous things like this is better for a child journal, which suggested they didn't even read the title, which showed that it was with adults. I mean, it was really an interesting uh, journey to find out what, what types of uh, excuses were used to prevent it from even being published. So, but fortunately, um, we did get it into the British Journal of Psychiatry, which is a really oh, good journal, good. Um, well, you know, well regarded. And it was at that point that you know people really then started to struggle that they couldn't ignore it anymore, that there was maybe there was something to this. And so, um, yeah, that's that's what we've had to do. That you know, a long answer to your question around how do you try to convince people and get them to change? I think you you have to you have to do the hard work, hard labor of doing the types of trials that they will pay attention to. I'm so glad you covered the point, though, of power analysis. It's not often talked mm-hmm. about. And and this yeah. is something, in fact, perhaps you can um, give us a definition of what that really means when you're looking at, sure. you know, psychiatric versus cardiovascular versus what sort of intervention you're trying to look at. Yeah. Okay. So, so a power calculation is um, where you're, you 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 decide how many people you need to put through your study in order to detect a significant effect. Mm. And so, um, what's really important for your listeners to understand is that if you have a really really big study with lots and lots of people in it. Then it it has the that has the opportunity being able to detect group differences, and oftentimes you'll detect group differences with really really large studies, but the group difference will actually tend to be quite small. So we've been a little bit, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the wool pulled over our eyes in a way from really big RCTs that have been published by the drug companies because they often will have very large samples mm-hmm. and they'll detect a group difference, and so they'll say that the, for example, the anti depressant was uh, superior to placebo. But what the lay person and the public won't realize is that the group difference is very small because with those large studies, you can detect the very small, small effects. Yeah. And that's, you know, though in a way that's, that's interesting. That's important. It's good to see that the, that the, you know, the, the treatment group was better than the placebo group. But then we also have to say, think about the magnitude of that effect. And so if it's a very, very small group difference, 
but it's significantly different. At that point, you do have to weigh that small group difference, the benefit that you get by taking the antidepressant versus the potential risk based on the side effects. And so you, you really need to weigh those carefully. But if you have a small sample and you detect an effect, that means that the the that the group the group difference is much larger, mm-hmm. and so that means that the effect is much larger. So it, because you with a small sample you can only detect a large effect. Yeah. So with our study, by the the having a what's what's usually viewed as a fairly small sample, there was eighty adults, forty and you know approximately forty in each group. Uh, then um, in that kind of situation, if you find a significant group difference, then your effect is going to be at least a medium to large effect. And so then you then that makes it makes it more clinically relevant. And that's when you ha- if you have a large effect and then your side effect profile is really minimal, which it is with vitamins and mm-hmm. minerals, it, 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 at least based on the data that we've collected to date, then you have a bit more confidence that so this, if, if uh, it's worth trying this treatment because the chances of it working are much greater and the risks associated with it are much smaller, at, you know, relative anyway to the med- medication. So I don't know if that's answered your question no, about effect perfect. sizes. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. But flowing yeah, so, on from that, we see, for instance, like, um, you know, antidepressants, you've, you've really got to flip the coin um, chance of it working or not wor- working um, on a first choice of antidepressant. And I guess you hone that over over time with regards to what might work or what doesn't for your patient. Just including the micronutrients of zinc might help it to work better, regardless of first choice. I guess where my flow on question from there is, when you're looking at biochemistry and you're looking um, at um, adequate intakes of foods and micronutrients, are we looking at a pharmacological effect here of the nutrient, or are we only looking at correcting a deficiency? Right. I.e., can we force our way through broken machinery, like the the concept right. of methylation? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Hard to answer. Not quite sure, but we think it's having a pharmacological effect, and so uh-huh. I think it's more than just correcting a deficiency because yep. a correcting a deficiency. Um, would require a much lower dose than what we're using. If you're just looking to prevent yourself from, say, getting scurvy or rickets, yep. then you don't need as high a dose of, say, vitamin C in that situation than if you are vitamin D than if you're trying to um, determine what is optimal what is optimal level for brain functioning. But on top of that, you're talking about, is the system broken? And we do wonder whether people who have mental illness do have something going on. Is it, you know, driven by genetics? Is it because of environmental insults? It's hard to know, but it may very well be that their biochemistry is not working as optimally as other people, and that in turn, they therefore need more nutrient than what someone with a normally functioned biochemistry would need. And so we might be, you know, dosing, having to give, provide more in order for that biochemistry to, to work, func- you know, to, to um, work optimally. So for the biochemical reaction to work, you might need to provide more enzymes and coenzymes yeah. than you would if the biochemistry was working properly. And that might be because of SNPs um, in specific genes. Ah, so here we get into something. So um, mm-hmm. I'm going to tie this in, and it se- might seem distant, but um, the work of Professor Lynn Griffiths with regards to migraineurs on no- Norfolk Island. I asked her if okay. she found uh, an issue with methylation 
um, with regards yeah. to the SNPs, and she didn't. She didn't see okay. that that she had to use the quote unquote active folate. She just used folic acid. She didn't okay. seem to see this. Have you found this though? Because it just seems to me to be not just an area of great interest, but what I'm what the, I'm getting from the feedback from clinicians is, you know, you can use one form and it it will work not at all or too much and mm. st- might um, aggravate yeah. symptoms. So it really does seem to be quite personal. Yeah. So I can't answer your question because we haven't been able to address that appropriately through research. Mm. So in our research, we are always giving people the same combination. And you can't really do anything other than that in a, in a double-blinded trial. If you can't individualize the approach, you can't give some people, you know, what you think yep. would match that biochemistry yep. versus giving somebody a different, you know, nutrients. Twelve their biochemistry. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've, I've, I've put a lot of thought into how can we do this and try to address things like the MTHFR and, you know, are there people who would do better with methylated folate or others who would do better without it or just, to, you know, without any folate? Because I've certainly heard um, about those issues that have been raised clinically. So... As far as I know, at this point, um, you know, we've got a lot of the clinical data of people saying, I think that some patients do better on this specific nutrient versus not using that specific nutrient, as you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether, you know, as far as I know, the research isn't, um, isn't there yet to say that there are, you know, if you've got a specific biochemistry, then we need to match it. Yep. There, that just hasn't happened. We are doing our best to start to try to answer this, but it's actually not a simple uh, thing to study no. to look at whether or not you can correct biochemistry through giving nutrients because you then have to look at you know whether or not you're changing the genetic expression and that's not a that's not a simple thing to do nor is it a cheap thing to do mm. so um, so we are trying to explore this but um, you know whether or not we succeed in in determining whether or not you can predict who should you know what nutrients you should give given someone's biochemistry i just don't think we're there yet i know some people would argue with me but i would say just show me the data yeah show me the data that someone does better you know on this particular nutrient versus another one particularly when it comes to either methylated or unmethylated i've I've heard a lot about it yeah yeah Um, it's very it's very contentious and it just seems that as you say we're just not there yet there are those people that make um that specialize in it um yeah but the data isn't there to back that sort of choice of therapy up. Yeah, you'd have to. You'd essentially have to, um, you know, do a. You could do it. Do it quite easily. I mean, well, not that easily. But you could. You could test for somebody for MTHFR, for yeah. example, and yeah. you could then randomize people. You know, if, even if they've all got this genetic mutation, you then randomize them to either you know one to another, one or another, and see what impact that has on on their symptoms. I suppose you could do it that way. As far as I know, it hasn't been done. Oh, I'm just trying to think. That's a single nutrient. There, there might be some stuff on that, but I, I'm far more familiar with the combination approach of where what we've been doing, which is to give a whole bunch of nutrients at the same time and see see what happens. I, I mean, I've I've certainly reviewed the literature generally on using single nutrients, and I'm you know overall it's modest. You can some people will benefit from that, others won't and the overall effects are pretty small with some exceptions there's Mm. a few exceptions where you get larger effects Um, but you know the the approach that we're taking is more of a shotgun approach 
give everyone the nutrients that are needed to make sure that the mitochondria are well fed, that the um, you know that you are addressing all of the nutrients that are required for the methylation cycle, um, that you're ensuring that the gut or the you know the gut bacteria yeah. are well fed with nutrients, and then see what happens rather than taking the approach of let's just try to fix this little bit of biochemistry that's wrong because I just don't think we're at the point where we we know what's wrong, and so to take that approach of let's just give that one nutrient. It's actually not appreciating that they work synergistically together. Um, you know, each new, all the nutrients are working together. You look at the, you know, the biochemical processes to make neurotransmitters like serotonin, and you you see that it uh, requires a whole host of different nutrients. That's and the right. same goes with the mitochondria and the Krebs cycle and making ATP, that you know, a whole host of different nutrients are required. So why we would think that we could fix it with just one nutrient actually doesn't totally make physiological sense. No, it's a a whole paradigm shift that people, if they want to embrace natural medicine, they really have to get out of pill drug type mentality. It it doesn't work that way. That's why we eat breakfast. Um, Exactly. uh, That's why we eat a variety of food because that's what we need. So so let's move on from there. Felice Jacker has done great work with with diet and mood mood disorders. Mm -hmm. Do you then employ... Or do you find effect um, of using micronutrients even given a poor diet? Or do you really need that foundation there first that they have the diet and then micronutrients can work? Yeah, great question. Okay, so we don't manipulate diet in any of our studies. So they come in and we have a great variety of diets that are being um, consumed by our participants. Some do have great diets and some of them come in with the having just eaten at Kentucky Fried Chicken and bring yeah. in their, you know, Coca-Cola. So um, so we, we, we accept anyone and we don't make any comment about diet, not that I don't think it's important, mm. but because we, we can't have them manipulating their diet yep. while we're giving them nutrients. So, yep. um, so it works. So we've looked at um, whether or not people change their diet and whether or not that might better explain the changes in symptoms over our RCT. And that doesn't, that doesn't, people typically don't change their diet. There are a few who come in and go, oh, this is a study about nutrition. Uh, maybe I should change my diet. And we've certainly right. had that happen. But it doesn't actually happen that often. Um, that people kind of make that, you know, put two and two together and go, yeah, I should actually change my diet. So, um, but what we don't, I mean, what Felice's work has shown is that if you come in with a really bad diet you can, and you shift someone towards a healthier diet, like the Mediterranean diet, which is the smallest trial, mm. then you can have a positive impact on mood symptoms. And so, but the question is, is that are there people out there who even when they, that happens and they get switched to a better diet, do they? Um, do some people actually need, need more nutrients yeah. than than what they would get out of a, a good diet? Yeah. And that's something that we don't really know the answer to yet. So we'd have to do a comparison of the nutrients versus a dietary change, perhaps, in order to know whether or not some people actually need more nutrients. Mm-hmm. I think some people do. I really, you know, having seen enough people through our clinical trials and hearing about some people who come in with fantastic diets. 
eating really well, lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of fish, you know, healthy fats, nuts, et cetera, and they're still struggling with a lot of mental health symptoms, then you know that that's not going to be enough for them. And they may have that type of biochemistry that just needs more nutrients and that they may, that's in order to, for the, that, their biochemistry to get corrected. So that's um, that's what I think, but we haven't been able to. We haven't studied that empirically. It's a it's a really hard study to do. I mean, if we're going to get into that, randomizing people to nutrients or, or dietary change, it's not a that's a, that's a a tricky tricky study to run because yeah. there's no well you can you can hear it already. There's no blind, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you'd have to yeah you know, you'd have to try to solve that. You'd probably have to do a three or four arm trial, and then you're looking at 200 people. So. Haven't done, haven't gone there yet. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I see, I see that as important, but I also think that my role at the moment is getting nutrition on the map. With our research, and we're sh- that we're showing that just giving vitamins and minerals can have a Im- positive impact on mental health symptoms. And across the board, we've looked at it with sleep, we've looked at it with ADHD, we've looked at it with stress, PTSD following earthquakes. So we- we've looked at it with a whole host of different symptoms. And yes, we see that the- these symptoms get better. And so we are putting on the map that this is relevant. Mm. You know, if you then take our research and you say, okay, let's eat better fantastic. You know, that's great if we have that impact on getting people to to really be considerate of what they're putting in their mouths. I'm delighted, even though I haven't done those types of studies. We're, we, we can't supplement the whole world. No, that's we, right. <laughs> it's, it's, so we'd much, we'd much prefer that we invested in good food, ensuring that our soils are properly replenished with all the minerals that, that are required. At the moment, we don't do that enough. And so our soils are depleted in nutrients. There are challenges with the, you know, the, just overall the nutrient quality of our food. That does mean that for some people, they have no choice but to supplement mm. in those circumstances. I want to ask a, a question a little bit later about ligands of the the, the micronutrients that you use. But oh. in the meantime, with regards to... I don't to... know if I can answer that question. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. What about things anyway. like compliance issues with regards to yeah. you're, not being, you're not taking one little tablet to yeah. you know, block uh, uh, um, effectively block a a biochemical process, you have to nourish things, and this is the issue that a lot of um, orthodox medical professionals have with nutrition: is that you know you're getting a plate full of tablets, sort of thing. How yeah. do you find the issue, therefore, of compliance with any sample size? But let's also include kids. Right, getting them to swallow the pills. Is that mm, what you mean? Yeah. 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 So um, we have some really great data on compliance from our, our studies. Uh-huh. And so um, we, we collect pills after, you know, after a couple of every two weeks. Um, so we collect back everything that we've given to them. We have them report back to us on how many pills were, how many um, you know, doses were missed so that we have a pretty good idea of whether or not we can get people onto the schedule. Yeah. So we work hard to get people in our clinical trials to take the pills three times a day because they need it to take up to 12 pills a day. So that's four, three times a day yeah. to, be in our cl- to, to get the full breadth of those, the nutrients that we're giving. So um, our experience has been, yes, we can do it. So we've, and these are people with ADHD for the most, you know, the ones that have been our blinded trials. Mm-hmm. So they are people who inherently struggle with, you know, remembering things, paying attention, all of those things. So we've been able to get people like that to follow the reg- the, the regime of taking the pills three times a day. Yeah. 
Um, and so I guess the answer is you can do it. I mean, I think for some people they might require that, you know, that maybe some text reminders or other, you know, useful um, electronic uh, reminders to help them get on track. But as soon as you get into the, the routine of taking it with every, every meal, then we find that we can actually get people to remember there will be people out there who just can't do it. But I've been actually pleasantly surprised at the um, at the number of uh, doses that actually do get consumed. And we can also confirm that because we we send them for blood work and we can see that nutrient ah, levels right. are going up. So we do know that it's not just about them telling us what we want to hear. That was my but next that question. Being, <laughs> it's actually being con- confirmed by um, the the nutrient levels in blood. Some some nutrients don't change just because of homeostasis, so you'll never see a change in some of them. But there are nutrients that are good markers of compliance, like B12 will go up if you're giving people a large amount of B12. Yeah, that's a salient point, actually. The the elegant machinery to bring the body back to homeostasis. Um, you know, if you don't know what you're measuring or, nor why you're measuring it, then you can say, no, there's, it's having no effect. This has been raised years ago with, for instance, oral glutathione. Do you employ more than just B vitamins and minerals though? Do you employ these, you know, um, nutrients called, you know, N-acetylcysteine for ticks and things like that? Do you find that of there of any import or do you tend to look at the basic, uh, micronutrients, minerals? Yeah. Well, the the I have it. I'm a clinical psychologist, and not a pharmacist, and not a compounder. Yeah. So I, I I do not put the the micronutrients together. Gotcha. So remember the story that I told you, which was that there were these Alberta families who were treating themselves with nutrients. They're the ones who developed the formula that we've been studying. It has changed oh. over time because that was over 25 years. 20. Ooh, is that about right? It probably was about 25 years ago. Yeah. So the formula has changed over time. But that's the, the one that we decided to, I decided to study. For the most part, is that there's just no other company that's actually decided to, stu- to provide or to produce a nutrient formula that targets mental illness. Mm. Most people will, you know, a lot, many um, supplement companies will do things that target the well population but not really mental illness. Mm. If you just, if you think about it, because there's more money in wellness, there's more people than that you can get to consume your product. So why would you, you know, restrict yourself to a smaller percentage of the population, right? It does make sense. So, I, I wonder though, whether part of that might be claims, you know, you, you're not, you can't claim. So. Oh goodness. Yeah. Where do we go with that one? That's just a, you've just that's a nightmare. <laughs> on, on claims. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about that. Um, um, so, uh, so, so, I mean, just, I mean, so just to finish that story is that the, the, co- the company, um, in Alberta made the pro- product and, um, specifically targeted for mental health symptoms. They don't, they didn't, you know, they've, they've gotten into a lot of trouble with Health Canada about claims and they don't put claims on their, their labels mm. that doesn't exist there, but people know that that's what the product is for. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but I mean, I've, I've, the, the, the nice thing about the, this, the, this particular formula and working with this company is that uh, there are no strings attached. So I do not receive any money from the company and they don't pay me to do this research. They give me the micronutrients and matching placebo for, for free with absolutely no expectation of me, of what I, I do with that the data that we we collect. Mm. So that means that they don't they can't influence me on what I 
publish, how I publish it, where I publish it, what study I run. They just uh, they just give it to us for free, and they'll give it to any researcher anywhere in the world for free if they're going to research it. Yeah. So there's not a lot of companies out there that give, will give you their nutrients with no strings as t- attached. I've I've certainly um, been approached by other companies over the years, and that I'm, I you know I just say to them, I'm happy. Like you know, people will say, you know, I get a, a, an email, why don't you study my product? Okay, I'll happily study your product, but these are the conditions. Yeah. You give it to me for free. You give me a matching placebo, and you don't have you don't have any control over the data. It's got to be that Who's way. Agree? Otherwise, it's well, yeah, there's no point. There's no point in doing that data if yeah. it's tainted from the outset. Yeah, so so that's why, but that's why we've had to run it. This we it's been so important to not be tainted, um, in order for us again to be taken seriously. Because mm. if I had accepted any money from any you know this company or any other company that we've studied their products, because it's not just this one company, there are other ones that we've studied. Then you, then I will get immediately tarred with a big brushstroke yes. of huge conflict of interest, and so I have been able to keep completely clean of any industry money. There's not a lot of researchers out there who can keep that claim, and that's been ten years. So all our funding comes from independent sources, either you know people who are interested in our work who decide to donate money to our research, or that I've gotten small grants from here, you know, different places that have managed to to help me fund this study these studies. We run it very much on a shoestring budget. Um, you know, there's not a lot of bells and whistles and I do what I can do with the money that I've got. But we've been able to do an awful lot with a very little amount of money. Brilliantly done. So, Brilliantly done yeah. to maintain your ethics. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, otherwise, I mean, again, I w- the number of people who have accused me of getting money, that's huge. You know, not, it, I, I, it's even, you know, in the British Journal of Psychiatry, someone wrote a letter saying that they must have, they must have ties to the, far, you know, to the they industry. <laughs> and I had to, even though we declared no conflicts of interest in our paper, yeah, had to go back to them and say, well, actually... No, we don't. I mean, we no. This is how it is. This is how we've chosen to to run our research: is to have no, no, um, no, to receive no money from the industry. Some, I guess, it's just. I think it's so. Cur- I think the pharmaceutical industry has become so corrupt that it's really, really hard to believe that there are some people out there <laughs> that are actually, you know, um, will do it. Will do it this way. We just had to. There was no way, no way we could be taken seriously if we didn't do it this way. What about yeah. what about looking at microtherapy, micronutrient therapy versus antidepressant mm-hmm. therapy, or you know, yeah. um, stimulant therapy in in beha- in mood disorders, yeah. behavior disorders? Um, I mean, it's it, I've thought about it, and um, you know, I, I at this point I haven't done it because for lots of reasons. Uh, we really need to again, as I said before, we've got to put this on the map, and the only way we can put this on the map is just running, you know, head to head trials of placebo versus nutrients. Um, if you were to to compare it to stimulants, there's I mean, in the short term, stimulants have such a huge impact on ADHD symptoms. Like in terms of these kids are suddenly, you know, within a few hours, calmed down, that we would never be able to have that same level of effect in the short term. And it would be very hard to run a very long-term study. So in the short term, I think stimulants would win. 
And I always tell people that if you want to have a very quick change in your child's behavior, then micronutrients is not the way forward because the changes are going to occur very gradually over time. And so you're not going to have immediate hit within the next three or four hours that you take the micronutrients. Hmm. So, um, so it's they're they're apples and oranges. They have such a different effect. The stimulants are very, you know, so effective in that short term that we we can't we simply can't compare. And so, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. They just work very differently. And you just, at the end of the day, have to weigh up, you know, the long-term effect of and the risks and benefits. And that's where I think micronutrients would come ahead. It's like the, sl- the hair. Yep. You know, is that the right, is it the hair that goes slow? <laughs> is that the one? Um, <laughs> the tortoise the and the hair. Turtle? Tortoise turtle. and the hair, yeah. Yes. The tortoise and the hare. Sorry, it's a tortoise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Tortoise <laughs> goes slower, okay, sorry. but he wins. So, yeah, so your Ritalin is the hare, would that be right? That's and your, right. Your, your micronutrients are your tortoise. So, I've just come up with that, that analogy. I hope it works. <laughs> so, um, so, so the um, micronutrient in the long term, like when we observe people over a long period of time, that not only do we see um, changes in the symptoms that we were targeting, but we also see wonderful changes in other areas of what, uh, as well. So we will hear of improved sleep. We'll have, we'll, we will hear about um, stabilization of mood. They're, they're re- a lot better regulated. Yeah. Um, parents will tell us that their kids can be reasoned with now. So it's not, and, and we don't take the, you know, the child can still be active, so we don't remove their activity. But, you know, my perspective as a, as a parent, I would say, you don't, do you really want to completely sedate your child? No, Probably right. not, but, it would, you know, it'd be nice if there was greater control over it. That's what the micronutrients seem to do. So they don't, they don't you know, they don't sedate them. They, you know, they're still, they can still be lively kids, but they're less anxious. Or, as I said, they've, you know, their mood is more stable. And I guess it's, a parent has to weigh those things in the long term of is there do I want to achieve an immediate change in their ADHD symptoms at the risk of having long-term potential challenges and what we do know in the long long term for stimulants is that the child will very likely be shorter than what they should have grown um, and that in the long term kids who are taking Ritalin are no better off than kids who haven't taken Ritalin so their symptoms are exactly the same when you follow them over the long term so you kind of say okay well is, is that worth it is that you know that they're going to be shorter and their symptoms are going to be no better than someone who never took this drug mm-hmm. so you know, you, that's, that's I think, what people have to, to consider. And in, in the end, what we've noticed with micronutrients is if you stay on them, then you, we continue to see good stability of their symptoms and maintained that they're well, you know, that their symptoms are well um, controlled yeah. over a long period of time. And that seems to stay, that they continue to see, we continue to see that over time. We haven't, I mean, in terms of growth, we haven't um, uh, looked at that in the long term because we just haven't had that opportunity. But gotcha. we are intending to do that. But we do find that the kids eat, um, that the parents report that they actually have good appetites when they're taking the micronutrients as opposed to what you'd expect to see with the stimulants. So, so there's, it's, 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 I so yeah, God, that was a long answer to your question of the, you know, do we want to compare the, the, the micronutrients to drugs? And I just, you can see some of the challenges of what would it achieve? Um, because we would actually just show that it, with respect to ADHD symptoms, you would probably get a bigger effect with the stimulants. Yeah. But that may not necessarily be what you want, what, you know, what, what is actually in the best interest of that kid in the long term. When you're talking about the evolution of this product that you've been using, 
Do yeah. you personalise it, quote unquote, to the Australian-New Zealand landscape? I see actually a, quite a big difference there. But I guess where I'm referring to here is in Australia, um, every yeah. pregnant woman um, since 2010 is now um, recommended to take not just their um, iodine-enriched food, mm -hmm. but a supplement as well, because the mm -hmm. iodine-enriched food is yeah. not enough to support the needs of iodine in the pregnant woman. And yeah, that's the, right. And the addition of this supplement has helped IQ levels and things like that in kids. I'm uh, not just giving iodine. I'm just giving iodine. Now, just um, yep. um, mm -hmm. is is it the same for the soils, the geological makeup of New Zealand? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so iodine and selenium are very deficient in New Zealand. Gotcha. And so those are, two, of course, two nutrients that we need to make sure that we do get in New Zealand. So, so we're currently running a pregnancy study, so uh, I, I'm up to date on great. all of that. <laughs> so that was my next question, are. because we're talking about preconception yeah. to prevent this sort of thing from, or hopefully yeah. to present, prevent these sort of disorders yeah. from happening in the first place. Mm. But there's a yeah. couple of things I need to delve into, and that is, do you find, I know that you're academic looking after these studies and that, you know, your role is really the controller of these studies, but in practice, do you find that the, the long-term use of the stimulants to control behaviour or indeed the, the sedatives to control behaviour in some instances is actually doping down a gift that some of these, might ki the, that some of these well, kids it, might I have? Mean that, I, I mean, that's, I think some people would argue that that's exactly what they do. But, um, and I think that that would still be up for debate about whether or not that's actually what happens. But what we do know with the stimulants is that um, that there's there's no benefit to academic achievement, which is something that people should really stop mm. and think. You know, you've got something that seems to be improving your concentration, so that you can do your homework. And 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 parents will tell us that their child is finally able to focus. And so you'd think that that should translate into better academic outcomes. But all the studies that have been done looking at long-term academic outcomes, there's it's there's no advantage to having taken the Ritalin. That's and only you on have the Ritalin. To stop and wonder, huh? That's, That's only on the Ritalin. Yeah. What yeah. about what about with um, using micronutrients as well? Is there any difference? Uh, micronutrients. Um, with the, the academic studies performance. That I am a, oh, academic performance. Um, this, I think most of the studies are, I haven't looked at this recent, really, really recently, but my understanding of the studies that have been done using micronutrients for normal children mm. is that there is some uh, intellectual advantage gotcha. that is conferred by using the, the nutrients. So that there, and that, but it depends on the study because I don't think all studies have necessarily shown the benefit. They haven't shown a decline, um, but some studies have shown that uh, the kids who take micronutrients are at an adva a greater advantage. Mm. I, I guess where I, where my mind goes with with this is, mm -hmm. I wonder if if ever you know Einstein was known for his social <laughs> social ineptitude, um, yeah. and I wonder if. He was if he were born today, would he be over medicated, and would we be seeing the <laughs> right, the right. things that yeah. we we term as genius? So Brilliant. I gotta yeah. I gotta ask this question: Are we really yeah. dumbing down some geniuses out there? Oh, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I hate to comment on that one. <laughs> and say that that's, that's happened. Another study. Um, <laughs> 
So, um, I mean, there's there's certainly some research that's been done on creativity and ADHD. One of my PhD uh-huh. students from many years ago looked yeah. at that. Um, so, you know, that there is a debate around whether or not kids are, have ADHD or whether or not they're creative. And I and we found that there was it was a you know overall mixed findings on that one. Right. So some kids are creative, some are some have ADHD and are creative, some are creative don't have ADHD and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I guess I, I'm not going to I don't want to be held. To <laughs> on that one, if Einstein was born today, no, would fine. he have been medicated? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. And would it have produced the brilliance? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've got MedSafe as the regulatory body in New Zealand. Yeah. We've got yeah. the TGA, which, yes, despite do. its failings, uh, yeah. uh, really is the envy of the world with regards to um, quality testing and things like that, manufacture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would this supplement be approved for TGA, or would it? Because no. because New Zealand is rather liberal in uh-huh. in their its inclusions yeah. of. Yeah, I mean, you you raised, I mean, you raised, you you touched on this a little bit before about health claims and yeah. um, that sort of part and parcel of the legislation. So. Um, the problem is, is there, I mean, it's, it's a very much a gray zone at the moment. Um, we've, we've been, uh, we've had a, na- the national health products bill has been in front of parliament. Um, and as at the third reading, yeah. it, I, I've been involved very much in petitioning it and preventing it from going through. And so far we've been really successful at preventing it from going through what it would essentially do. I mean, what they, what they're claiming it would do is give greater confidence to Kiwis about, um, claims that can be made on supplements, but it would also limit the doses that would be allowed. So yes. it would basically take in the TGA limits that are there and apply them in New Zealand and make it even worse because they would take some of the limits that are, are applied in Canada and take those and basically take the lower limits. So right. we would really lose out in terms of opportunity to be able to use things at, 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 a, at a therapeutic level. That's the whole point. So it's an interest. Oh, it's such an interest. I mean, it's an, uh, it's a really interesting area to, to delve into Essentially, though, if you have like the 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 allow- allowing health claims to be made on natural health products, they say is a good thing. Yeah. But if you actually start to delve into it, and you you know, there's there's a lot of health claims that are, that have been proposed and put forward for New Zealand. You know that you know it will support um, you know mood or will support um, cognitive functioning. But when you look at the research, and you know the, the really good example here is the is a call is the Vitacog trial, which is a trial that came out of the UK that showed that if you use three three B vitamins at a certain dose, and I can't you know I can't remember all the doses specifically, that but they they could assist in preventing cognitive decline. So that health benefit is allowed. In New Zealand, according to this new bill, but the doses that are required in order to match that health claim aren't allowed because they were putting <laughs> limits on B12, like really low limits, uh. low limits on folate, etc. So they're saying that we're going to allow these health claims to be made, but they're not not allowing the manufacturer to use the nutrients at the level that is required in order to be able to make that health claim. Does that follow? Oh, yes. <laughs> call, yeah, so, call me so, a conspiracy I mean, theorist, but I, <laughs> I, I do stick to the adage that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not being followed. And I, <laughs> exactly, and I, exactly. and I wonder so, if this is a way, a, a backdoor way of allowing codex yep. alimentarius to prevail. Yep. 
you got it exactly. And so, you we all need to be really, really suspicious of that kind mm, of legislation absolutely. that wants to limit the levels because they also claim that it's about safety. And I've done a lot of submissions again to our government around safety of nutrients and produced all the documents that are required in order to show that, for example, I mean B twelve is a great example. Yeah, B twelve is limited at a very small dose. Um, for the for um, you know based on the, what they're for TGA. I mean, I know that TGA. I can't remember what it is for. It's an, you know it's just a few micrograms. You know, B twelve is a good example. Is yep. where they they put a really low limit on it. Hmm. And yet B12 is water-soluble, water and um, there's no toxicity related to B12 whatsoever. Mm. So there really shouldn't be a limit on it. Mm. There's no need for a limit on it. So why have they limited it? Why is that being put forward? So you have to then wonder what is the ulterior motive mm. to put a limit on B12, because we know that B12 is so important for a good mental health functioning, and we need it at those really high levels in order for it to have the impact. So that's one of those really curious ones where they're claiming safety yeah. and keeping New Zealanders safe, but actually it, the, the data don't support that. So, that it, so when I started to, you know, I start, started going through all of the the five and a half thousand ingredients that have been put forward with all of their dose restrictions on them and started to go through all the vitamins and minerals and see these dose restrictions, they didn't, they were not logical. They were not based in science. And so that was my huge objection to the whole thing, which is that they're saying it's about keeping Kiwi safe and it's not. And you guys have the TGA and you've got limits on your, your nutrients and it's not about safety. It's about preventing nutrients from being used at a medicinal level. Because because that's where, I mean, you can get these nutrients at those therapeutic doses, but it has to be registered as a medicine. Yeah, that's right. So And, and so do we really want nutrients to be limited, to have the, the access to, limit, uh, to nutrients be limited in that way? I would say we should resist that as much as we possibly can because that's essentially saying we're going to control and tell you how many, how much nutrients that you're allowed to have. Selenium is a great example. Selenium has been limited, and I'm sure it's Australia and New Zealand as well, at 150 micrograms. So you can get um, the, that amount of selenium out of five Brazil nuts, as long as they're from Brazil. Yeah. So, um, so, so you're, you, they're essentially they're saying, well, it's okay. I mean, I could have 10 Brazil nuts. I'm assuming that there's no limit on the number of Brazil nuts that I'm allowed to consume. But if I want to take that in a pill form, I'm going to have to go to the doctor and get a prescription for yeah, it. Right. Yeah. Just looking at mental illness, the, the statistics are showing that the number of people with mental illness is on the rise. We don't have, we haven't trained enough psychiatrists and psychologists in order to be able to meet the growing demand, nor will we ever be able to. We, the, you know, the, we, we don't have enough personnel on the ground to be able to meet all the needs of our community no. with, you know, with health professionals. And yet that's what we're expect, you know, expecting essentially how to, how to solve this problem is that, oh, just train more, train more, train more, give more drugs, give more drugs, which is exactly what we're doing. You know, one in 10 New Zealanders is on an antidepressant. I'm sure it's similar in Australia wow. and other countries. So, so that's how we're, we're, we're responding to this problem. Yeah. How about we respond and say, okay, how about we look at their nutritional needs? Because we know that they're probably deficient and that it's a pretty cheap option to see if we could just raise everyone's nutrient levels to a higher level. We'd probably eliminate a good chunk, not everyone, but a good chunk of people and, and be able to just resolve mental health problems in that group. Then you leave the ones who are much more you know, serious and who just 
just don't respond to that uh, that approach then you know we've got professionals available for that but wouldn't it be nice if we could just take a little bit more charge of our you know educate our public and take more charge of of things that they can do in order to improve their health Professor Julia Rucklidge, I can't thank you enough for that, particularly that last wrap-up paragraph, because I can hear in the emotion in your voice about, you know, it's almost, you're almost pleading for the government to, to take heed of, of the need for this sort of intervention to take place. So I thank you for joining yeah. us on FX Medicine. I wish you so much good fortune with your research um, that you're undertaking at the moment. And I'd love to have you on FX Medicine at a future time. That'd be great. Sure. Have always happy to always happy to talk because I, these messages need to get out. Yes. And they, they ha- just and we haven't successfully got the message out yet. So as long as that message doesn't you know hasn't broken through and people are telling me how everyone's on nutrients and we're kind of bored of hearing about it i need to keep talking well done this is fx medicine i'm andrew whitfield cook hi i'm andrew whitfield cook here at fx medicine we strive to remain clinically relevant so stay in touch with us and please let us know how we're doing we love hearing from you you can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.